Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, very exciting the story that uh, that we have our guest today that he's going to be sharing. I mean, incredible, you know what's going on now in in Europe and especially you know on this area that has to do more on the fintech side of things. But definitely a lot to learn about around the risk taking and really calculating the risk. Uh, also around building, scaling, financing. So a little of everything when it comes to the uh, cycle uh, of building a hyper-growth business. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Patrick de Nonaville. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Thank you very much for having me. This is actually uh, my uh, very first podcast, so I'm looking forward to it. Amazing, Patrick. Well, let's make it count, and let's do so by doing a walk through memory lane. So originally born and raised in Paris, in France. So how was life growing up? Well, it was a pretty uh, interesting time because it was, uh, you know, very peaceful and etc. But also, um, I think a time where uh, you were looking for opportunities or things to do, uh, and around, um, you know, around Paris and you know, very rich city, very cultural city, and etc. And one of the things that one of the experiences that I had a chance to do very early on, like a work experience, I was invited to spend a week at the uh, Paris uh, Stock Exchange. I was like fourteen, fifteen, something like that. And it was incredible, right? I mean, we're in the middle of, at that time, it was actual people uh, doing the business. And, um, you know, after a few days, uh, they would give me like an order book and uh, I would walk around and talk to those grizzled uh, traders and pass on orders and establish quotations and et cetera. And I really found it very stimulating to be given that kind of responsibility so, so quickly. And that, that kind of set my mind up for what I wanted to do. Uh, maybe not for my full life, but over the uh, the, the following uh, the following few years. Now you have it in your blood being an entrepreneur. I mean, you have your father, your grandfather. So you know you you were just waiting for the right time. You know, and and we'll talk about you know what you guys are doing now with October. But but before doing that, I mean, what what did you learn from, or how really you you got that inspiration going with seeing your father and then also your grandfather executing on their own you know a, initiatives. Well, you know, it's there's there's really two sides to this because obviously when you're an entrepreneur, you take a huge amount of risk and, and the amount of uh, success that you get depends on your work, depends on the analysis you've done on your market uh, and depends a lot on luck, right? And 
my, my grandfather created several companies which you know still exist today in certain shapes or form, usually successful. Uh, and my uh, father, after you know spending time at uh, IBM, etc., also started companies. And some of them, you know, did well for a while, and some of them didn't. And so I was really exposed to the fact that he was putting a huge amount of work into these things and, and hope and excitement. And sometimes things didn't work out the way um, he was hoping uh, or deserved. And, and so, you know, it did put that seed in of being an entrepreneur, but it also cautioned, cautioned me against it. I don't know really how you should pronounce that word in English, but I guess people get it. And, you know, really put me off it for, for quite a while. And I think as I grew up, I was more looking at classic opportunities uh, than at launching a company myself. But, you know, interestingly, all my brothers have uh, launched their own companies almost immediately after they left school. So it's, yeah, there is something going on there. That's amazing. And in your case, um, what you did, I mean, it sounds like problem solving has been, you know, very much uh, present, you know, in your life. And, and that's why you perhaps studied math and science and, and you went in that direction. But one of the things that you did is rather than going at it, you know, perhaps, you know, after having seen, you know, how tough it is to build and scale a company, you know, you took the, the, the more like the calculated risk approach of uh, taking a look at what the world of corporate would look like. And you did, you know, a, a really a, a great career uh, in, the, in the financial services uh, sector, working at some of the biggest banks uh, in the world. So, so why don't we, you know, really touch, you know, on that and, and more importantly, what you learn from each one of the institutions that you worked at. So let's start with uh, JP Morgan. What did you learn at JP Morgan? Yeah, I mean, first of all, if I step back a little bit, is how I got there. So, you know, after that experience on the, on the stock market, so I knew I wanted to become a trader. At that time, it was becoming more technical, more mathematical. So people said, you know, you should probably study that. So I, I did this, ended up in a in school, which is quite well-known in, in France, very, you know, engineering-driven, and which suited me very well. I mean, it's really my mentality. And usually right after you leave that school, what you do is you go on either to serve the state for, you know, 10 years, or you do further studies for another couple of years, or you can um, effectively quit uh, and that's how it's called uh, and go straight into, into the workplace. But of, you know, like 400 students every year. It's a small, you know, reasonably elite school. Maybe like five, six people do that. So I, I was one of these um, because I knew what I wanted to do. Um, the, uh, the diploma gave me access to the job I wanted and, and there was no point. So I went straight into it, 98. Uh, and it was an interesting time because, you know, you had 97, 98, 99, small crisis happening. You had the crisis in Asia, you had the crisis in Russia. Uh, and then you had the uh, 2000 implosion of the, uh, of the stock bubble. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. I mean, I never heard of any of these crises before I actually went into trading myself. And now they seem to happen absolutely all the time. And, and that was quite, you know, um, quite an indication. And this couple was the fact that as I had hoped, you know, I was given quite a lot of responsibility very, very quickly. I mean, after two months on the desk, you're supposed to take risk, you're supposed to quote prices for customers, um, and you have to live with those decisions, which is something, again, that I absolutely love. If you take a decision, it's yours, you make money, you lose money, there's no if, bust, it's somebody else's fault or whatever, it's your responsibility. You, you learn the 
cost of putting on too much risk in certain markets and, and not in others. And you learn the interaction with the clients as well, which is a really rich thing in terms of information, in terms of um, responsibility to your the people in your team as well. Uh, a very collaborative environment, frankly, very caring for, for the people pushing on education, uh, getting us better. You know, I spent time in New York. They had a fantastic training program. It was, it was really, really a good time. And then there was the, uh, the merger with Chase, which I think happened in 2000. Things started to change a little bit. And then I moved on to another bank and then at Goldman. Yeah, and in Goldman, you became partner. So Goldman is, uh, without a doubt, the, the segue you know, into October. Uh, and, and, and in Goldman, I mean, Goldman is an amazing you know, place. I mean, I know many former Goldman you know, folks and, and the training that you get from Goldman also and the, the type of culture that they have is, is really remarkable. So, so, so tell us about this culture, because I'm sure that, You've learned a lot, you know, from that type of culture that perhaps you're also applying to October. So what makes Goldman so special when it comes to the culture? The, the risk mindset, I think, is quite unique. Um, I think at many banks, even the ones who do well, I mean, there's an understanding that you, are, you have a career, you kind of have a, um, you know, uh, you're part of a bigger organization, and some of the decisions get very diluted. I went through an organization where my bosses did not want to understand the way I was making money. As long as I was making money, it was fine by them, right? Goldman was a complete opposite. I mean, there was a culture of ownership. The people, especially when I was making money, wanted to understand the way I was making money in order to make sure that they were fine with the way I was making money, which you know, was very surprising and very rich um, in terms of the discussions that we were having. Um, and I think you know, during the crisis in 2007, 2008, that, that made quite a huge amount of difference. Of course, you know, there was also some bad decisions taken then, uh, which uh, to a point the organization paid for, but it was, I think, a reflection of the richness of that culture of risk decision-making that allowed Goldman to go through this period, um, avoiding some of the things that, you know, killed quite a number of very respectable, very old um, institutions. Uh, and going through that, with the team at Goldman really created something which um, you know, carried me for a number of years after the crisis and you know, making partner there was something that was really special for me. I mean, we all suffer up to a point from uh, imposter syndrome, but when you have the CEO of Goldman who calls you on the desk and says, hi, Patrick, I'd like to offer you to become a partner at Goldman Sachs, that, that was kind of a weird moment, very unreal. Uh, if you, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you see what I mean. Well, definitely something that you will tell your grandchildren. That's for sure. So uh, I, I'm not sure. You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, hopefully life is long and there are other stories. But uh, it, it was it was definitely an interesting moment. That's amazing. Now, now you did get your feet wet. You know, in the startup world, first by doing investments, and uh, you made a bunch of them. You know, one of them. You know, on 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 Cantox. You know, which is great folks. You know, also from Spain. Yeah. Uh, and, and you also passed on others that were good, such as Revolut, which is one of the unicorns now in, in Europe. So, so how were you? I mean, obviously, this was new territory for you, but this, yeah. was, this was giving you that exposure and access to the venture world and to what was happening in fintech. So, so tell us about you know, those, that, that kind of like stage or phase for you. Yeah, so th th there's a, a number of things which play into that. The first was an interest in technology and the engineering side always uh, has been there. Um, the other was, you know, you remember that 
internship I did on the um, uh, Paris Stock Exchange, where by the time I started working, all these guys were gone and replaced by computers. Uh, and I could see that happening in more and more parts of the business. Um, in the equities business, for example, you know, there used to be like 150 traders. And by the time I left the business, there were only two. Uh, everybody, you know, was replaced by computer up to a point on the, on the cash side of things. So I could see that, you know, this kind of wave of changes was, you know, happening. And I could either stay on the beach and wait until the water was coming to me, or I could go and try to, you know, see how, uh, how the water, the water uh, felt and, and, and swim a bit. But so the uh, one of the things which happened is one of my best uh, friends, a guy called uh, Romain Lavo, is a partner at Partec, who's a well-known uh, VC in, in Europe. And um, it was really the beginning of fintechs in Europe. And obviously, Partec knows a lot about tech. They didn't know as much as they do now about finance. And for me, it was kind of the opposite. And so they were, you know, from time to time asking me to have a chat with, with some funders that they were looking at. Uh, and, you know, we would sometimes co-invest as we did uh, on Kentox, for example. And sometimes I would tell them, look, I think it's a bad idea. And, and, and you know, on, on Revolut, I was still a good man at the time, very much focused on, on compliance and et cetera. And I thought the, the, there was a real danger in the business of not handling the KYC and the AML thing properly. So the know your customer and team laundering and all these things, um, which is, by the way, something which is, is hurting quite a few of the um, new banks in, uh, in Europe at the moment, in, in Germany and, and et cetera. So it, it's a real risk. But, you know, obviously I completely missed the impressive uh, growth potential of those businesses. So, yeah, as you say, but, you know, um, you have to you have to miss some to uh, enjoy the ones that you got. Absolutely, absolutely. You can't win them all. That's for sure. So, uh, no. so Patrick. So, so in this case for you, what what would you say was the trigger? You know, for you to. I mean, obviously you were here a partner in Goldman. You were making it happen. You were very very successful in your career. So, what was that trigger that made you want to kind of like leave everything and start something from nothing? So th there was a combination uh, of to, to be good as a trader, and especially in a really demanding organization as Goldman Sachs, you really need to be 100% passionate and involved in what you're doing. So, and in my case, it was the rockets and it was all these things. And I really loved that for a long time. But I guess, I don't know if I grew tired or I grew old or the market changed. I mean, the period 2013, 2014 was a little bit boring or that's the way I felt about it. Um, so I, I lost interest a little bit. I became a bit detached from it. And, and the other aspect was this interest in, in technology. And the third and final piece of the puzzle is uh, is a meeting, a meeting which was arranged with uh, by Partec with a guy called Olivier Gua. Uh, and I, um, you know, I had seen what was happening with the lending marketplaces in the US and the UK, and I asked the Partec guys, you know, if you could on bail, what you know, what do you see in Europe? Um, and they say, well, we, we know this guy is thinking of, of doing something, you two should meet. So we meet, I go into the meeting thinking maybe this is going to be a good investment opportunity. And I come out of the meeting and I call my wife and I tell her, look, uh, we might need to change things a little bit uh, if you're okay with that. And I'm, I'm blessed that uh, she, yeah, she was okay with that, which obviously uh, was a big change. Uh, but what an adventure. Yeah, no kidding. So then what happened next? We started the company uh, in the uh, late uh, period of 2014. I officially leave Goldman at the end of that year. 
and, and start you know, working full-time uh, with October as soon as the year starts. And you know, the problem with the lending marketplaces in Europe is um, some countries, it was forbidden to lend uh, to an SME if you were not a bank. Right. Uh, so you know, they couldn't emerge because they couldn't exist or not legally. End of 2014, the regulations changed. So all of a sudden, you know, retail lenders can potentially finance companies. And so this is how we started, basically. Um, we started by opening, uh, you know, French SMEs to, uh, to retail investors. Um, but from the start, we knew two things. We knew in order to scale this business up, you also needed institutional money. So not just retail investors. And, and that required both some um, regulatory uh, experimentation, because it was not exactly uh, allowed at that time, um, and, and the ability to raise those funds. And also that it needed to happen across Europe. And so, you know, very quickly, we raised money from institutional investors. Very quickly, we went to Spain, then into Italy, then into the Netherlands, and then into Germany, which we opened uh, with you know, first loans at the beginning of 2020, uh, which was a really interesting timing, as you can imagine, with COVID. Yeah, no kidding. Now, in terms of the, um, and we'll talk about the fundraising just in a little bit, but just for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of October? How do you guys make money? That's a very good question that often people forget to ask because uh, how you make money in startup land is, is uh, you know, sometimes not the most interesting thing. But, you know, in our case... <laughs> more growth, more ch- growth, crazy growth. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in our case, the business model was known from the start. We actually have not changed it. Every time we make a loan, say we make a loan of uh, 100,000 euros, uh, we take a fee of uh, 3%. From the uh, from the borrower, and then as they repay their loan, we take a small fee for the repayment of the uh, of the loan. So we, we don't take anything from the investors. Everything is charged to the borrower, which is you know both tax tax efficient and, and quite transparent for everyone as well. And and that's how we made money, and that was the only way we made money until the very beginning of this year when we launched a new thing, which we can talk about in, in more detail a bit later, which we call October Connect. Got it. Now, in terms of the fundraising, so you have two sides of the equation. So you have the debt that you're raising for issuing those loans, and then also you have the equity, you know, side of 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 the raises to that you raise for the actual, you know, business, uh, the corporate structure, and you know all of that stuff, and how you're ramping that up. So, how has been the experience, you know, of of doing those those dual, you know, races, and and how that works for the people that are listening to really understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, when you're in those fintech businesses, indeed, you're right, you, you need two kinds of money. You need the money, um, which is going to be paying the salaries, paying for your marketing, your offices, and, and all these things, uh, which is usually equity and maybe some debt that the company is taking on. In our case, you know, it's been pretty much 100% equity. So we raised in total 52 million euros uh from you know a number of investors and we can talk about the cap table a bit later if you want because we we spent quite a lot of time thinking about who we wanted around that table and then if you're lending money to businesses you need that 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 fuel right i mean uh, like uh, if you are a uber you need drivers and and, and food if you're a lending fit tank you need money to them and yeah the way we raise that so is with retail investors and with those institutional investors and one of the things that we wanted to have from the start is alignment of interest between everybody. So 
you have some fintech models or, or platforms where you know some of the deal flow goes to retail investors, some go to institutionals, uh, and there's no skin in the game from the platform itself, and etc. And we thought that was a bit um, unfortunate if you want to do something a bit different from the bank and something where transparency matters to have that kind of disalignment. So every loan that's on the platform is financed both by the retail investors and the institutional investors. And we, the funders and, and the managers of October, we put more money also with institutional investors so automatically in every single loan at work. Um, so everybody's you know, aligned on that. And that's, that's a really rich driver of our culture. Um, transparency is, is one of the key things that we think differentiates us from traditional financial institutions. And structuring things this way basically forces us to be transparent. If you have retail investors, and you have a default, and if for whatever messed up reason you want to try to hide it, I mean, they're not receiving the money on their account. Um, they'll, you know, raise hell, uh, and they'll, they'll, they'll ask why, and etc. So you really need to be on top of things uh, and, and to communicate with them in a very transparent manner because they'll really not forgive you if you don't do that. I mean, they will be right to. Of course. Now, on the debt side of, of, of things, how much have you guys raised? So we, we've raised in total close to um, 850 million so far. And, and again, when we said debt, it's not debt that is taken on by October. It's really money that goes straight into lending to the SMEs. So yeah. the, the people who um, invest in that debt, so for example, insurance companies, don't take a risk on, on October. They take a risk on the SMEs that October lends money to. And, and, you know, we started this quite small, right? Our first fund was um, 25 million euros uh, back in 2015. You know, all of those 25 million euros, quite a bit of the money was coming from us. But we got our first external investors, you know, a, um, an asset management company. And then, you know, we were very cautious in deploying this money. So that created a first track record. And then we went to raise our seventh fund. We managed to attract insurance companies, you know, like kind of the next stage of, of the investor side. And we closed that fund at 90 million. And then on the third fund, we managed to convince the people who were in the one and the two to follow us. So that's really important. It's called re-up. That's really something that investors are looking at. If you don't have re-up from your existing investors, that's usually a bad sign. But we got, you know, 99% re-up. And that's allowed us to then get like the French Public Investment Bank, which in itself also helped us get the European Investment Fund, which then helped us get most of the national investment banks of the countries we're in. And so, you know, we closed our uh, third fund at 190 million, and then we, our fourth fund is, is now getting pretty close to 250 million. We also raised a specific fund for uh, Italy uh, of, uh, of 200 million in the middle of the COVID crisis, which was, you know, an interesting environment, but, but full of opportunities. So, you know, a real uh, increase in the pace of, uh, of raising money, but, um, but also pretty exciting to see that we, you know, we have the credibility and our teams are really good at going through the due diligences of, of the investors, of increasing sophistication, increasing requests, also reporting requirements, which, which are getting more and more onerous. Um, in a way which is, um, you know, um, very appreciated by everyone. And what was the what was the thought process? You know, and you you were alluding to it before. What was the thought process of bringing the people that you did to the cap table as investors on the equity side? So we wanted people who would help us on the debt funding 
as well. And so it was important for us to have insurance companies in there because the, the asset we're creating, those SME loans, are really well suited to the balance sheet of, of insurance companies. And so, you know, we got uh, CNP on board. So CNP, the, the name itself is not super well known because they don't sell direct to customers, but partners, but they are the fifth biggest insurance companies in the insurance company in Europe. And we also got Allianz on uh, both sides, uh, on our cap table and our board, just like uh, CNP, uh, who obviously, you know, are the um, largest or second largest insurer uh, in the world. So. That, that's the first strand. Then, because we've always seen ourselves as a tech company, fin and tech, but really a lot of investment in the tech, it was important for us to have VCs. Uh, and the, uh, the VCs that we have on our board are Partech, no surprise there. Uh, they, we knew each other. And we, Olivier and I met through them. And uh, Eurasio was um, you know, a, a very successful, very, uh, very reputed um, French, uh, French VC. Uh, and then we have family offices. Um, that's a bit of a maybe unusual thing, but um, you know the um, every time you go to an airport or anywhere, you, you, there's one name you see absolutely everywhere, and that name is uh, Deco. So Deco, they do all these billboards. They're the largest billboard company in the world, uh, and they're French, and it's an, ama- an amazing family story. Uh, I mean, you should do a podcast on on them. It's incredible, and they, um, you know, they they joined our uh, they, they joined our investor board very early. Uh, very interested in, in helping us, and they, um, you know, the customers. Many of the customers are SMEs, so there was an interesting angle there as well. Nice. Now you were talking about the transparency of the culture and. You know, you guys have definitely taken that to another level when it came to either dealing with fraudsters or dealing, for example, with the illness of your of your co-founder as well. So tell us about what are the fundamental uh, building blocks behind the culture of October? So the um, some of it, you know, let's be honest, uh, happened by accident, right? That in, in the... In the instant, in the moment, you have to take a, a decision that you don't necessarily realize is, is going to be structural. But that is definitely what happened with transparency. It's very easy to be transparent when things are going well and you're successful and you're posting on, on whatever Twitter or LinkedIn uh, how big the fundraise you've done and et cetera uh, is. But you know, when it's bad stuff, that's when it becomes costly. And that's also when, if you're really committed, you really have to do it. Um, and we had a first instance of that very early. So in 2015, of 2015, we make a loan of uh, half a million euros to, uh, to a company where you know, we, we were feeling confident that the financials were good. We had, had really good conversations with the, uh, the CEOs and et cetera. And at that time, we had lent, uh, I think, 12 million euros. So it was you know, significant exposure. And in February of 2016, we realized that the company is actually a complete, almost completely empty shell. Um, and we realized that because we, we see requests coming through uh, that look really suspiciously like that company, uh, you know, small details change, et cetera. Uh, and so we dug deeper and, and, you know, it became very obvious that, um, you know, we got caught. We, we did three things. So the first thing is we immediately uh, involved the police. We also immediately uh, informed our uh, investors, you know, equity and, uh, and the uh, retail investors in the, uh, in the fund. And we immediately informed everyone in the company. So, you know, it was, you know, between the day where we found 
out about it. And the day where absolutely everybody knew about it was, I think, four or five days. You know, just a time for us to just you know, put everything together and, and put it out. And we, you know, I think a little bit by luck, but also because we were so fast and et cetera, we, we managed to get the money back. Uh, the guys ended up in jail uh, and, and, you know, the end of the story w- was good. But it was a really baptism of fire for our culture uh, to see if really we were going to be transparent. And actually, you know, the funny thing is those guys now five years later continue to try to defraud us and, and, and many other financiers every week from jail. I, I don't wow. even know how they do it. They're not supposed to have access to phones, but, um, uh, and we had, um, actually, you know, we've built a tool that scans the deals that happen on all the other platforms because it allows us to, um, avoid what is called layering. So layering is when people borrow from several platforms at the same time. And, and we spotted, uh, one loan on another platform, which was, um, you know, clearly to us fraudulent and, um, by digging deeper, we saw what's coming from those same guys. And so we called the other platforms and then told them what we found, and they avoided the loss of uh, 800,000 euros. And on the back of it, um, we offered them to become um, one of our first customers of that October Connect tool I was talking to you about, which is the technology we've built to protect ourselves against fraud. We now offer to third parties. Um, so in the end, those guys, those fraudsters, uh, helped us. Hey, there you go. You know, a new, a new, a new, a new model. You know that comes out of that. So there's always a positive in the negative, I guess. Now, if you're uh, willing to learn, yes. <laughs> no kidding. Now, in terms of 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 now, like for the people that are listening, you know, anything that you can share in terms of to really understand the size of October, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else. Yeah. So today we've got uh, 110 employees in five countries and about. A bit more than a third of these are in our tech employee teams uh, and um, and also our data team. So, and instead of being just like a French company doing business abroad, we really try to have local teams as well. So, you know, we've got like 18 people in, in Amsterdam. Uh, our data team is actually in Amsterdam. Uh, we've got 18, uh, 20 people sort of in Milan. We've got people you know, locally in Madrid, uh, which obviously a city you know well, uh, gives yeah. me an excuse to go and visit. Uh, and um, and and in um, obviously and in Germany as well, where we decided to be based in Munich. Um, and in each country, we have people who are experts at you know uh, knowing the SME markets, knowing the credits analysis, and all the ops, the recovery. All of these we found needs to be local. Um, and so that's our model. But all of them are using the same platform. And all of them are using the same you know, tech tools. All of them are using the same processes. And all that data is, is um, you know, standardized and used in exactly the same way. So you've got, you know, every time you open a country, your operational leverage increases. Uh, and, and that's how you scale up. Basically. Nice. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, Patrick, and you wake up in a world where the mission and vision of uh, October is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, you know, that's a fantastic uh, question. Uh, and, and it's really something that we, with Olivier, we thought about hard uh, before launching. It's a world basically where getting finance is never the top of mind issue in the mind of an entrepreneur. Um, because, you know, nobody dreams of taking on a loan. People dream of building companies. People dream of, you know, living in a nice house. Um, they don't want to, you know, they, they don't wake up and say, I want to take a mortgage. And so if we manage to make that experience of getting the financing simple, fast, predictable, transparent uh, for, you know, 
um, SMEs uh, and etc. You know, we, we think we, we free up a lot of possibilities for employment, uh, a lot of possibilities for for creation of of you know general wealth and social wealth. So that that's what that world looks like. It's it's a world where basically, I'm, I'm you know I have a business, I have a project. The fact that I'm going to get financing for that project or not is something that it's a, it's a problem that I will solve fast and is not going to be my main thing for two or three months, which you know is is still too often the case. Uh, I think that's the experience of, of many uh, fundraising, um, both on the I guess the equity side, but certainly on the debt side for small companies, is something that is is way too stressful and, and time consuming. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time, back in time to that moment where you know you went into that, uh, let's say Starbucks or a coffee shop or a restaurant where you met with Olivier and and you came out like super ecstatic and and calling your wife. Uh, there was a change of plans. Imagine you were able to to say, Patrick, come over here, you know, and you get that younger uh, Patrick, you know, that younger Patrick, perhaps, you know, like back in 2000 and let's say 15, where you were starting, you know, like to incubate the the idea and, and, and before bringing it to life. Imagine you were able to give yourself, that younger Patrick, one piece of advice before launching October. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, I think I'll try to sink in two, um, if, that's, if that's okay. And, and the, the first one will be to print out that mission in, you know, big, bold characters and, and put it in front of myself every single day because it's so easy to get into the business and new sites of where you want to go. And sometimes you can do that for a surprisingly long amount of time and, and, and then it becomes very costly. Um, and you know, there was a period in, in 2017, 2018, where we achieved our goals by doing bigger and bigger loans. And it was very efficient. You know, we were spending the same amount of time on, on loans uh, and obviously making more money because our fees are proportional to that. And we were growing nicely. But at the same time, um, you know, we were making zero progress towards a mission because we were not making progress on our tech. We were not making progress on our data. We we're not Because we didn't need it to grow by growing, by just increasing ticket size. So that would be number one. And the number two, and it's kind of linked, is, uh, is more personal, is, you know, I should have dug myself into the tech side of things much sooner than I did. And, you know, because of my past, because of my skill sets and et cetera, I was very much focused on, you know, getting the money in, getting, you know, uh, all the risk management tools and et cetera in order and all these things. But at the same time, in order to really move towards that mission, you need not only good tech teams, which is you know what we had, we had really good tech teams, but also excellent domain knowledge. You need to know what that tech is going to be used for. You need to um, be sure that every single step of progress you make in your tech takes you towards that mission. And and that is you know that is sometimes difficult for people who have just a tech background. Um, and so, in order to really become a fintech, to bridge those two things and make progress towards the mission. It became important for for me personally to to become a lot more involved in this to to you know to start coding again to to do things uh, myself that I saw a need for in order to you know bring the tech team level of knowledge and involvement into making our mission happen at the level of intensity and and, and excitement that I think we now have um, achieved in, in no small part thanks to we have a fantastic CPO and a fantastic uh, CTO and, and an excellent head of data as well. And, and they have that mission in mind 
uh, in a very, very strong way. But, you know, um, I underestimated the fact that I needed to be involved in that, especially at the beginning, a lot more than I was. I love it. So, Patrick, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I love exchanging uh, with people who, uh, you know, are um, ambitious uh and realistic at the same time um it's 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 a tough balance even even for me to uh, to have but um uh, don't hesitate i mean the european market i think is super exciting at the moment so i'd be really happy to exchange with people from the us who, uh, who are curious about what's going on here amazing well patrick thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today thank you Alejandro. it was a pleasure if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.